The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hello, Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you the global economy. And we're talking about babies this week, how some countries have too many, others not enough, but there don't seem to be many today that get it just right. Birth rates have plummeted across many parts of Europe and Asia in recent years, and China, after years of doing the opposite, is now desperately trying to persuade women to have children. But not the Philippines, which still has one of the highest fertility rates in Southeast Asia. We'll hear a little about that country's baby boom in a minute, why it's a headache for the government. I also have a wide-ranging conversation with the renowned social policy expert Isabel Sawhill on the economics and politics of supporting families in the US. But first, you might be surprised to hear that young American women without children are now richer on average than men who make the same choice. An increasing number of women are enjoying the freedom and extra cash that comes from a child-free existence and good for them. But it may not be quite so good for the US economy, whose working age population has just fallen for an unprecedented third year in a row. Here's Bloomberg's US economy reporter, Molly Smith. Anna Dixon has a great job, tons of friends, a long-term boyfriend, and a travel history that make anyone jealous. She also has no kids, no plans to have them, and no regrets. For me, I love being able to very quickly get up and go and travel somewhere whenever I want. I also want to enjoy my time and not have to worry about uh, the responsibilities all the time back home, especially when it comes to kids. I think that makes it much, much harder um, to just be flexible with travel. Uh, when you have kids, some of those freedoms are uh, lost. Sit down, sister. It's not worth your time. We got Dixon, who's 42 and works as a product manager at Google in New York City, is part of a growing cohort of women who are putting off having children or forgoing motherhood entirely. And as a result, they're advancing further in their careers than generations past and accumulating a lot more wealth along the way. Single women without kids had an average of $65,000 in wealth in 2019, compared with $57,000 for single, child-free men, according to research from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. For single mothers, the figure was only $7,000. Then there's the cost of having kids to consider, which is only rising with U.S. inflation near a four-decade high. 
The expenses in bringing up a child born in 2015 through age 17 will run more than $310,000, according to estimates from the Brookings Institution, which adapted a government calculation to adjust for inflation trends. That added about $26,000 and doesn't include the cost of a college education. What's the, what is the consequence for your earnings of having kids um, and sort of the motherhood penalty? But obviously the like, you know, non-motherhood bonus <laughs> can be the counter to that. This is Julie Cashin, Director for Women's Economic Justice at the Think Tank Century Foundation. The whole purpose of the women's movement is that is, is to maximize choices for women, right? It's to, it's to really make it so that every choice is a viable one. Um, income should not be a thing that dictates that, um, which it totally is right now. Parenthood was losing its appeal even before 2019, and the hardships brought on by the pandemic appears to have accelerated the trend. Think of things like Zoom school and childcare issues, to name a few. A Pew Research Center study last year found that 44% of Americans ages 18 to 49 who don't have kids say it's not too likely or not at all likely that they will procreate someday. That's up from 37% in 2018. With this newfound wealth comes new opportunities. Single, child-free women are an emerging consumer group with a lot of spending power. More of them are buying homes, gravitating toward brands with progressive values, and perhaps most of all, traveling. Here's Rachel Bonsignor, Vice President at GFK Consumer Life. to sort of do what they want with it. And I think, you know, the general trend of experiences over possessions is not brand new by any means, but this is definitely one of the sort of audiences that is really um, prone to that. Dixon has embraced this aspect of her life with trips to Alaska, Switzerland, and Anguilla all in the last year. Those vacations have largely been with friends from a group of about 25 people who are mostly unmarried and don't have kids. Uh, ultimately, I started meeting all these people who were living these incredible lives and uh, traveling all the time and had great jobs and were going out and having fun and, um, you know, dinners together and traveling together and activities. And I just said, I, that's, that's the life that I want. Seeing other people not have kids and seeing other people who uh, were living that life definitely validated it for me that that was something that I could do and be happy doing. Um, and that that was really, really appealing to me. It all fits into a broader rethink on the concept of family. That's at the heart of the research of the D.C.-based think tank Family Story, led by Nicole Sussner Rogers. There's a, a pretty widespread cultural reckoning with the notion of family as, as beyond biology, you know, not just for single women. I think there's a lot of people, people feel less of an obligation to the family they were born into in, in all sorts of ways, um, and more of a freedom, I think, to embrace this notion of chosen family. Of course, this lifestyle does have its drawbacks. People who are single and child-free pay more in taxes, 
and housing is a lot harder to afford on one income than two, especially with home prices and rents near record highs and mortgage rates on the rise. Another worry for those without children is who will care for them in their old age. But as Dixon points out, it's not as if adult children always come through for their parents. For her, the pluses of parenthood don't outweigh the minuses. Um, Alice and Janie, I read that she said this a uh, few years ago, and it really, really resonated with me, which is that I would much rather regret not having kids than regret having them. For Bloomberg News, I'm Molly Smith. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, clearly it has economic implications for the US or any other developed economy if women are systematically choosing not to have children. And we will get into that in a minute. But first, since we are always global on Stephanomics, I wanted to zip briefly to the other side of the world and a country that potentially has the opposite problem, the Philippines, which, along with Indonesia, currently has one of the highest fertility rates in Southeast Asia, 2.5 children per woman. In fact, it's one of the handful of countries that the United Nations expects to account for fully half of all global population growth between now and 2050. And that is posing its own challenges. Siegfried Alagado is our economy reporter in Manila. Siegfried, I know you're in the middle of reporting this story, so thanks very much for taking the time to do this. What's going on? OK, so... Um this is really an offshoot of, of the uh, World Population Prospects Report, which, as you mentioned, um, identifies the Philippines along with eight other countries, uh, which will account for more than half of the projected increase in global population until 2050. So we're really looking at um, 
you know, what's the driving force behind this statistic? Because if you look at the birth rate um, or the fertility rate in the Philippines, it's actually declining in recent years. However, it has remained high. So what we're really trying to um, answer here is, you know, why is this the case and what can the... Um, the government do to sort of slow the birth rate in order to reap benefits of a demographic dividend. We should probably explain the demographic dividend. So that's what happened in a lot of East Asia economies. And it was one of the things that helped to support their growth. You're growing fast at the same time as your population growth is slowing very rapidly. So you end up with a a, a bulge of, of lots of working, high-saving um people in the economy um, contributing to growth who don't have the same uh, large number of dependent children. And that gives a sort of period where the economies are kind of turbocharged by having those extra workers relative to the number of children. Is that what that's basically what we're talking about, isn't it? Yes, yes, that's it. And what's happened, the problem for Philippines and Indonesia has been that this, this demographic change has been too slow, really, to get that dividend. Why do you think the Philippines in particular has struggled with this demographic change? And it seems like the government has, has had difficulty um, when it's tried to address this issue. Okay, um, so Stephanie, uh, officials have uh, a multi-pronged approach to addressing this issue. They have health measures, they have uh, economic measures uh, in place, which are aimed at slowing the birth rate. They're trying to update the economic development plan to focus on reducing adolescent pregnancy and, you know, addressing admit demand for family planning among couples and individuals. However, um, these measures actually face a lot of stumbling blocks from cultural, social, and even fiscal factors. Um, family planning is viewed as taboo. Um, in the Philippines, where 80% of the population identifies as Catholic. It took about 13 years for a reproductive health measure to be passed into law in 2012. This law was viewed as a cure-all for maternal care, family planning, and sex education issues, but it faced another two-year fight at the Supreme Court. And when finally implemented, women's rights groups and other stakeholders said key provisions, including teenagers' access to contraceptives, were watered down. There are also misconceptions about uh, contraceptives that are circulating in social media, and this presents a challenge to policymakers and healthcare workers in offering birth control options, particularly to vulnerable groups such as the poor and the uneducated. Filipinos are among the heaviest internet users, spending hours on end on social media. And while the Philippines does have a population management program, um, it continues to compete with other priorities such as infrastructure and disaster risk management for an already stretched budget. And I think, uh, you know, when you talk about priorities and budgets, um, this is something that's apparent in a lot of uh, emerging market economies. And and I guess um, the big issue for, you know, we heard earlier in the program about, you know, the, young women enjoying the, the, the opulence, that the relative opulence that comes with not paying the cost of, of childcare and the cost of, of raising a child. I mean, I guess the flip side of that in the Philippines is it is exacerbating inequalities and poverty to have this high birth rate, which I think is concentrated in the lower income part of the of the population. Is, is, is that right? Um, it is. Uh it is typically the urban poor or uh, women in the countryside that 
lack access to maternal care and family planning services. And, you know, um, uh, traditionally, uh, they are, they're just more vulnerable. So this actually poses as a huge challenge to the uh, economic team of uh, President Ferdinand Marcus Jr., who actually uh, targets to bring down a stubbornly high poverty rates in, you know, um, high teens currently 20% and over down to single digits by the end of his term. Siegfried Allegado, thank you so much. Thank you, Steph. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Well, I'm delighted now to be joined by Isabel Sawhill, who's a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington and also uh, head of the uh, Centre on Children and Families. Um, we heard from my colleague Molly Smith there earlier, uh, Isabel, about what for some is, is a liberating phenomenon, you know, young, upwardly mobile women choosing not to have children. Um, but for a developed economy like the US, it's it's not necessarily good economic news if more and more women are making that choice, right? Well, I think it depends on your perspective. I mean, there are many people who say that if we don't have enough uh, children, we will not have uh, later on enough adults to um, pay into the Social Security and Medicare systems and support our social insurance uh, policies. But uh, others would say, no, from an environmental perspective, uh, it's better to have fewer children coming into the world. And if we need more people in the United States, we could always um, import them. I mean, people want to immigrate to the U.S. and raising barriers to immigration would uh, give us any rate of population growth we might like. And there was something specific that happened in the pandemic, something of a, of a baby bust. Um, what? How, how significant was that? 
Uh, there was a baby bust uh, during the COVID crisis, and I think it was uh, temporary, uh, most likely temporary, but superimposed on a longer term trend, which has been that uh, fertility rates have been uh, dropping for a long, long time. And I think that's mainly related to the fact that uh, women have more opportunities uh, than they used to. And the cost of uh, dropping out of the labor force or even cutting back on one's career ambitions are getting much more expensive and much more consequential uh, for most women. And I guess we we heard actually Molly talk about the the, the baby penalty or the motherhood penalty. Um, and of course, the flip side of that is a is a is a benefit if you are not taking time out to have have kids. I guess the other side of this, which you have. Um, you have described in, in in some of your work for Brookings is that um, the costs of raising a child have soared. So there's not there's the opportunity cost what you're losing in the workforce, but also um, the sheer costs that go into uh, bringing up a bringing up a child. Yes, that's right. The just the direct costs of uh, raising a child are now over uh, three hundred thousand dollars. That's over the entire uh, childhood period, and it includes everything from extra costs for housing and food uh, to child care and uh, extra education. Does not include college, though. So if we included college or university training, uh, that figure would go way up. Now, that figure was calculated for the typical middle class family uh, with two children and, and a married family. So it would be, it, it would vary from, you know, what you're depending upon what you earn and where you live and, uh, many other factors, how many children you have. But that's the, um, that's gives you a rough sense of the, of the costs of raising a child. And, uh, as you just said, that does not include the fact that one parent, typically the mother, is going to have to take some time off and, and or um, curb her own career aspirations. And that is very, very costly as well. President Biden, one of the things he was going to do is support families and um, give um, give more money, uh, make it more of a financially viable choice to have children. What, how, how has that played out? That's exactly right. Uh, President Biden had a Build Back Better plan that included major support for families in the form of child care, in the form of child tax credits that are like a child allowance, uh, and in the form of paid leave. And none of that has happened because uh, the U.S. Congress failed to ever enact any of those proposals. So uh, we are stuck as being one of the countries amongst all of the advanced countries, all of the rich countries, of not doing very much for families with children. So if you want to have children in the U.S., um, you're going to have to pay for most of it yourself. Are we potentially looking at a, a different balance? The, the babies that are born are potentially going to be more skewed towards um, the lower income families. I'm sort of thinking about how the change in abortion laws plays into this. It's already much harder in most states of the US to get an abortion than in, in other parts of uh, certainly than in Europe. Um, 
but that would that would be a, be limiting the choices of of young women in in another way uh, if they don't have the financial means to to go somewhere else. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, we know that um, unplanned pregnancies, which are typically what leads someone to seek an abortion, unplanned pregnancies are much much higher amongst low income women, amongst women of color, amongst the less educated. So they're the ones who are going to be hurt most by these restrictions on abortion. And we're going to see more unplanned pregnancy, more pregnancies amongst very young, dis disadvantaged women. And that is going to put a, a burden on our social assistance system, which is already uh, not very robust. And in fact, we did some analysis at Brookings that shows very clearly that the states who are being most restrictive on the on the abortion front are also the states where um, the most disadvantaged children live and where government policy does the least to help them out. I was going to say, are those the states that would one would think naturally uh, be in favor of giving more support for people having children if you're so encouraging of people to have children? And that doesn't sound like it's ironical case. that um, the, the states that uh, are are most eager to restrict abortion are also the ones that are doing the least uh, to help families with children. I mean, stepping back, we had also had a short chat with one of my colleagues in Manila because the Philippines has the opposite issue. It has had a very slow um, demographic transition. They've struggled with that actually for 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 cultural reasons, and there's been pushback from the largely Catholic population on uh, efforts to increase family planning and everything. It is a very difficult balance um, for modern economies to strike between um, having enough population and encouraging families to bring up children and making it easier, but on the other hand, also making it possible for people to make choices about family size and the way they live their lives. Are we any closer to finding a balance or is this still a difficult balance to strike even in economies that have been very rich for a very long time? Well, I think it is a difficult balance. Uh, and I think that um, uh, the, the biggest example of this is China. Uh, China, for many years, had this one-child policy. And then suddenly they realized that they weren't going to have enough um, people to both um, man the economy or uh, uh, provide the labor force they needed, and also not enough people to support a growing elderly population. So you do get an imbalance in the age structure of the population when you suddenly have a decline in fertility. So the Chinese have now shifted and are moving towards encouraging people to have children. And uh, so they kind of made a mistake and they're now realizing it. So they're the, probably the best example of the kind of imbalance you're talking about. I guess at the same time, giving women more options, interesting careers that they might choose to. Another thing that came up briefly in Molly's piece is that we also have other allegiances, new bonds that we've, we've formed with friends and and other sort of groups that we've sought out in life, you know, become kind of more important or as important as as, as family bonds. I guess that's a, that's a part of it. Yes, I'm not sure. Um, I think that um, there certainly are efforts for people to connect through social media 
But personally, I think those bombs are much weaker than the ones that occur in person and that require lots of time devoted to the relationship and that are less performative and more real, if I can put it that way. So I don't think that that's going to replace uh, family ties. But I do think that um, people are going to have smaller families and they're going to have them when they're older rather than when they're just out of high school, for example. We know that the um, uh, amongst the educated uh, women in America, at least, uh, they are marrying and having children much later than they used to. And that's a healthy trend in the sense that they're mature enough uh, to uh, devote uh, time and resources uh, to their children. And they know what they're doing. They plan to have these children and they're uh, devoting the time of both parents to doing that. Uh, what's happening is we are not seeing the same thing amongst the less educated. Amongst the less educated, we're seeing more and more um, uh, people just uh, having uh, children without having a plan uh, for how to pay the costs of raising them and how to uh, spend the time that it takes to raise a child. Oh, that's fascinating. Isabel Sawhill, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Well, that's it for Stephanomics. I'm off to persuade my children not to go to college in the US, but tune in for a special episodes next week from the Bloomberg New Economy Forum in Singapore. And check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You should also follow, if you don't already, at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Summer Sadi, Yang Yang and Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Carmen Rodriguez, Molly Smith, Siegfried Allegado and Isabel Sawhill. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, 
on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.